0: On Tuesday morning, we set a new national record for hospitalizations related to COVID, about 145,000 patients.
1: That's Dan Diamond. He covers health policy for The Post.
0: That's higher than the record that was set about a year ago during the last big winter surge. And it's also a really fast acceleration.
1: We wanted to call Dan to understand where we are with this variant— and why this surge is resulting in so many overwhelmed hospitals.
0: We've doubled in hospitalizations over the past month. The fact that we are in this territory means that if you're in a hospital, some huge percentage of your beds are devoted only to COVID. And that means some other percentage of patients who need care probably waiting for those beds to free up because there is so much COVID going around the U.S. health system.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Ella hay Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 11th. Today, record-breaking COVID hospitalizations. Plus, the power of reclaiming your name. Dan, you've been reporting on what the Omicron, Omicron, however— first of all, how do you say it, Dan? How do you say this variant?
0: I am wedded to the Omicron pronunciation, but I'm willing to accept that people have their own version of talking about this variant. Either way, uh, the variant is spreading so fast that I think we're just catching up in terms of how we pronounce it.
1: And you've been reporting on what this surge looks like inside of hospitals. How is this moment distinct with the Omicron surge compared to other points during the pandemic?
0: Well, first, I want to say what is Similar. There are still patients showing up in need, looking for tests, worried about their symptoms. It's just another crush in these up and down waves of COVID. But there are many differences. Doctors, nurses said this wave does feel different. One reason it's different is that Omicron is not hitting the lungs as severely as earlier variants. So there are fewer patients who need oxygen, there are fewer patients who need to be put in the ICU. Another way that it's different is that some patients are showing up not aware that they're infected with Omicron at all. They're at the hospital for a totally different procedure, and then they test positive, which comes as a surprise to them, and then has real implications for whether they can get care promptly. And then there's this third group of patients who are coming into the hospital because of Omicron, but it's not their primary reason. Maybe they have pre-existing heart disease or asthma, and Omicron has elevated the problem to a point where they need hospital care, but it's not a new problem. It's just the worsening of an existing one. Meanwhile, there is a shortage extensively across U.S. hospitals. It's up in some states, it's lower in other states, but overall, there are about one in four hospitals telling the federal government they're dealing with a critical staff shortage. And You pile on with that a shortage of drugs for COVID, hospitals are having to ration antivirals and a shortage of space, with patients being stuck in waiting rooms and put all over the hospital because there aren't enough beds at times to house all these people. Overall, it's, it's about as dark a picture for U.S. hospitals as I can remember in my over a decade reporting on the U.S. health system.
1: This one in four figure of hospitals being in crisis mode, what does that mean to be in a crisis situation?
0: Well, it means different things by different hospital. There are hospitals in a number of states that have moved to what are known as crisis standards of care. It allows them to trade off the normal priorities and who's being seen. Essentially, it's a form of rationing care. That's how bad it is. Hospitals are trying to make that reality clear. I don't know if that's resonating with the average American who is tuned out on COVID.
1: What does this mean for, let's say, I hurt myself and I have to go to the ER or I have a loved one who has a stroke who, you know, we call an ambulance. What does it mean for people who actually need immediate emergency health care right now?
0: It means only bad things. There is kind of a hidden working in the health system when an ambulance is trying to take a patient to a hospital. There isn't necessarily a hospital that's going to take those patients. Hospitals can go on what's known as diversion status. They basically put up a sign that says, we can't take anyone else. So ambulances increasingly during this Omicron surge have been bouncing around between hospitals, trying to find a place for their patients to go. I was talking to a doctor earlier this week who talked about a picture from the parking lot at one hospital of just dozens of ambulances lined up, waiting for their patients to be admitted. And we know that the longer you wait to see some patients, the worse their outcomes are going to be. The Omicron surge individually may not be posing much of a risk. There are things that I am still doing in my own life with the belief that my vaccine, my booster, my relative young age, though Omicron and, and COVID have certainly aged me, but the reality is I don't feel like I'm in severe risk from Omicron. But if enough people are in mild to moderate risk and are swarming hospitals, that does end up crowding out people who do end up in distress and need a doctor urgently and can't find one.
1: And what is the breakdown of people either showing up primarily infected with COVID or incidentally between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated?
0: Patients are supposed to say when they are admitted what sort of protection they have. We have good data on how many vaccinated patients are presenting at hospitals versus unvaccinated. Overall, the gap is wide, continues to widen depending on where you are. It can be 10 times more likely that an unvaccinated person is showing up at the hospital than a vaccinated one. That's consistent with what we've seen throughout the pandemic, that even if people are vaccinated and boosted and getting infected, the vaccines and boosters are fighting off the worst consequences of Omicron
1: this dynamic between vaccinated, unvaccinated, the, the kinds of patients who are showing up who are really sick with COVID, not just Omicron, but Delta, what role is that playing in the emotional and mental toll healthcare workers are dealing with right now? Like in your conversations with them, is that a dominant theme?
0: Well, hate, it it comes up again and again. I will say that doctors that I spoke to about this again and again tried to say, We're not angry about it. We're just frustrated. We're exhausted. But truthfully, I think they are pretty angry. And some nurses and other workers that I spoke to echoed that too. It it is a tough climate in America even beyond the health system. There seems to be frustration pouring out on airplanes, in schools, just lots and lots of pent-up emotion. And if you're a nurse on the front lines, you're getting a lot of that emotion, sometimes right to your face from an angry patient or family member.
1: Thinking about burnout hospital workers healthcare workers quitting or retiring deciding to retire i've heard a lot about travel nurses and and that being a way to sort of deal with staffing shortages what is the reality of a hospital system paying for travel nurses is that a solution
0: well it's a solution but it's also a symptom of the problem so one reason why there have been shortages these past couple of years is that folks aren't quitting healthcare they're just quitting their hospital and becoming travel workers. There's a premium paid for those workers. You can make more money, work less hours. It's pretty appealing, especially in a world where we see across all sectors, not just healthcare, people using the pandemic as a professional springboard to try something new, to be more flexible because they have their own personal needs that have to be attended to during a pandemic. So that's another accelerator of hospital pressure. If you have the same nurses working day in and day out, developing rapport, knowing where things are, that can lead to not only better care outcomes, it can make for a better work environment than seeing folks rotate through depending on whether you have a travel nurse on a certain day.
1: So last month, the CDC issued new guidance because of this crisis situation. They said that healthcare workers who have COVID but have no symptoms, could have to go back to work immediately. Do we know whether this is already happening?
0: It's definitely happening. I've spoken to some health workers who have come back faster than the five to seven days that CDC has recommended in other cases. There are specific hospitals that are now calling on workers because they're so desperate for staff to come back if they're asymptomatic. I will say that if if asymptomatic workers can wear PPE, it's not that they're going to be breathing on the most vulnerable patients. You can, as a hospital, say that the asymptomatic workers can only treat the patients who are coming in for COVID, anyway, like there's a way to try and make sure that the COVID-infected folks are only working with COVID-infected patients. But still, that's pretty concerning because we know that these symptoms can, if they don't show up immediately, maybe they can show up later. Folks can have unexpected consequences from COVID. You'd want, in a much better world, these health workers to have time to heal, just as the patients that they are dealing with have time, hopefully, to heal. The fact that they're being rushed back is a really disturbing sign of how desperate we are for doctors, nurses, and others to care for the Omicron surge.
1: And we've had similar conversations at other points during the pandemic about healthcare system being so strained. At what point does it just break? I mean, is this what it looks like for it to break?
0: I've heard people make that argument, Elahe, that this is a broken U.S. health system. I I don't know if I'd go that far. I, I guess you could say on a macro level, our system has been broken in a lot of different ways for a long time. It's fragmented. People are always falling into the cracks. There are people who have paid... Exorbitant bills when they shouldn't have. Our system has a lot of pre existing problems that COVID has only exacerbated. Just like COVID making someone's asthma or heart disease worse, the pandemic has made all of these problems in our own health system worse. Has it broken? I don't think I'd go that far. Maybe I'm just optimistic at heart, but I think a broken system is the hospital just isn't seeing anybody. People are lines out the door, doctors are quitting on the spot. There is a little of that. There are real frustrations that people are dealing with day in and day out. But I see right now a lot of bending to accommodate and not breaking, at least not as I would define it yet.
1: Is this strain being seen more in certain parts of the country than others and also among certain kinds of communities versus others?
0: Oh, that's a great question. So Omicron has been with us about 50 days now since South Africa first alerted the World Health Organization in late November. It's not a lot of time. It's not a lot of time to understand how the long-term consequences of Omicron manifest. It's also not a lot of time to know where is it hitting predominantly. In many cases, doctors and nurses don't know if they're treating a Delta patient an Omicron patient, just someone is showing up with COVID in their emergency room. The CDC has tried to offer a national picture of where Omicron is spreading and at what rate, but I'm honestly a little nervous of putting too much faith in it because CDC has had to revise these national estimates over and over again. They did say regionally that Delta variant was more likely in the Midwest, whereas Omicron was higher on the coasts. That would line up with previous COVID variants. We know that when they're coming from overseas especially, it makes sense that there might be more cases in hubs of international travel like New York City and Washington, D.C. than, say, in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri or in Madison, Wisconsin. It just takes longer for a new variant to spread throughout the heartland.
1: So it's possible that this is just the beginning, in some ways, that we're going to see some of these effects felt more deeply in other parts of the country that are already still dealing with Delta as the predominant strain.
0: It's indeed possible. I do think beginning and they might end up being relative terms with Omicron, given how fast it spikes and how fast overseas it tended to wane. I think it's going to be a longer battle in the U.S. than overseas for a bunch of reasons. One, we're bigger than other countries that saw their Omicron spikes go up fast and then go down fast. We just have more people to infect. And then the the previous experience with the pandemic here, we were never able to bring numbers down to the level that we saw in other countries. We just don't do a good job in the US for a variety of reasons at really eradicating COVID. So I do think Omicron is going to be bouncing around longer here than elsewhere, but it has moved quickly enough that I want to believe we're closer to the peak than we are farther from it.
1: Dan, what is the, the most pressing question still in your mind at this moment when we're thinking about the surge and the crush at hospitals?
0: You know, I'd like to think that two years into the pandemic, there are still ways that we could get better as a national health system in coordinating, in fighting the pandemic, in working together. And what Omicron has exposed is how, in many ways, poorly prepared we were for the pandemic to take another dark turn. So the need to strengthen the US health system, whether through federal legislation that is better paying health workers, recruiting them, training them, it it shows to me that we need to do a better job of having a workforce ready when there is a surge like this and having also more emergency capacity when there is a surge like this. Omicron has laid bare that two years into this pandemic, we're still learning how to fight it. And I think that's the most depressing thing. Not that the variant has emerged because we knew that that was possible, but our lack of readiness for when it did.
1: Dan Diamond is a health policy reporter for The Post. This segment was produced by Emma Talcoff. After the break, a story about what it means to reclaim your name. We'll be right back. And now one more thing about something many people, including
2: myself, will relate to. So I was at a comedy show, and the comedian asked who among the audience has been to China? And I stupidly woohooed, like never woohoo at a comedy show. And he zeroed in on me and asked me what my name was. And I said, Marianne. And he, you know, made a cheap joke. And he was like, that doesn't sound like an Asian name. And everybody laughed.
1: Marianne Leo writes for About Us, the Post's newsletter about race and identity.
2: And I was really frustrated because I think my whole life, I kind of discounted my Chinese name and never used it just for the very reason, just so I wouldn't get ridiculed. And here I was being ridiculed for using my American name. For the
1: longest time, Marianne never used her Chinese name, which is also her middle name.
2: Most of her friends didn't even know she had one. It started since I was a kid. The only people who use or call me by my Chinese name is my family. Not even my husband calls me by my Chinese name. It's a complete embarrassment and shame, I think, of it. Just growing up different. It was like one more thing, you know, that I had to go through. And even the way I introduce myself, usually my last name, I say Lou. But that's not how you actually pronounce it. That's the anglicized version. How you really pronounce it is like Leo, and it means willow tree. I learned Mandarin as my first language, and then even started in kindergarten. I had to do speech therapy in English as a second language, and that includes, you know, silly things like being torn out of recess and forced to say "world" many times, and bringing lunches that other kids would say that smelled rotten. So little things like that. So the name would just be one more affront to my identity and not fitting in. Until one day during the pandemic,
1: Marianne and her husband, who live in South Florida, decided to go to a local Vietnamese restaurant.
2: So here we were in this restaurant, and we were finishing our meal, pay the check, and then the table next to us was this white family. And the dad, after the waiter like patiently explained— you know, dishes, you know, shared everything. He starts mocking the waiter's accent and the cook's accent loud enough for everybody to hear. And we were sitting right next to him and we were the only other Asians in the whole restaurant except for the workers. And it was scary because it could have easily, you know, escalated like any of my stories and gone to something really bad. So I just slunk down my seat and um, my husband stood up and stared down the guy just glared at him till that guy shut up and when he shut up i just ran out because i just didn't want to deal with it and my husband stopped me and he was like we need to stand up and stand tall and be proud of who we are i was like wow you're right I was born in the U.S. and I saw it as, you know, I wanted to squash stereotypes a lot in my reporting. But here he was, you know, an immigrant, immigrated in high school. And he had horrible instances where, like, when he first immigrated over, his barber nicknamed him Charlie, which is off a slur from the Vietnam War. So he's been through horrible racism And he can still say that, and he can still be proud. And I think it was just my turn to do the same. And that's why I decided that I needed to do that with my name as well. I think that not only do you symbolize your name, it symbolizes your relationship to your family. I mean, that it's... Your family name, your generation name, and then your own name. So it all ties together. And not only that, it's become, especially when you are you immigrate over to the States, it becomes symbols of pride, but also can be bigotry, shame, and fear. And especially for me and many others who learn English as a second language or end up bringing lunches to school, the other kids say are rotten, It's just another reminder of a way that they stick out. And so many assimilate, like my parents, or they're renamed actually by teachers to fit in. And so I ended up essentially erasing my middle name, Jami. And when that incident at the restaurant happened, coupled with covering all those anti-Asian attacks, It made me realize I really need to stop hiding who I am. And I thought my name was a good place to start. So let me reintroduce myself. My full name and my complete byline is Marian Ming Leo. It includes all four words because I'm proud of it all, because it represents my complete self, Asian and American.
1: Marianne Ming Leo is an operations editor for The Post. She also writes about race and identity. If you find Marianne's story relatable because you've had to come to terms with your name or how it sounds, or if you've ever felt the need to anglicize it, we want to hear from you we'll include a link in our show notes where you can reach out. Lena Mohammed produced this story. That's it for post reports. Today's show was mixed by Sam Bear and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Elahe Izadi and we'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.